Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher Stack. I'm joined by managing editor David Noyce, who oversees our faith coverage. Hi, Dave. Hello, Peggy. We invite you, our listeners, to show your support for Mormon Land by going to patreon.com, where with a little a donation as little as $3 a month, you can access all of the Tribune's religion coverage, transcripts to our podcasts, and the Mormon Land newsletter. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormon Land. Now for today's episode. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints learn early on about the murder of their faith's founder, Joseph Smith. They know that on June 27, 1844, 179 years ago this month, he and his brother Hiram were gunned down by a mob at a jail in Carthage, Illinois. They know that no one was ever convicted of the killings, and they know that the ugliness that took place outside their, quote, city beautiful, marked the beginning of the end to the saints' stay in nearby Nauvoo. What many insiders and outsiders alike either don't know or fail to recognize, however, is that Smith's slaying was not only a religious martyrdom, but also a political assassination. They forget that the church leader was a candidate for the U.S. presidency at the time of his death. Today, with the help of Benjamin Park, author of the acclaimed Kingdom of Nauvoo, the rise and fall of a religious empire on the American frontier. We revisit the mystique surrounding Carthage, how it happened, why it happened, and what can be learned from it. Ben, welcome. Happy to be here. So for listeners who may not know, could you give us a Reader's Digest version of what led to the incarceration of Joseph and some of his fellows in Carthage? What were the charges that landed him in jail? Yeah, in early June of 1844, a growing number of dissenters within the faith and opponents outside of Nauvoo had become fed up with Joseph Smith and the Mormons. And so they published a newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor on June 10th, uh, exposing all the alleged crimes and activities that Joseph Smith was up to, including polygamy and political intervention. Joseph Smith, as the city's mayor, gathered the city council together and after four very tense meetings, ordered the Nauvoo Legion to uh, destroy the Nauvoo Expositor Press as a public nuisance. That destruction immediately caused a what scholars call a kerfuffle uh, throughout the region as a number of external opponents and internal dissenters joined together to denounce what Joe Smith did. Eventually, an arrest warrant goes out for Joseph Smith for destroying the press. Uh, at first, he tries to flee, but then he turns himself in. He and some of his closest associates arrive in the county seat for Hancock County, which is Carthage, uh, Illinois, where they were going to be tried for destroying the press. But uh, when they arrive, those charges end up being set aside. And instead, they are charged for treason based on Joseph Smith's declaration of of martial law in the city of Nauvoo. Importantly, that charge is one that does not allow you to get out on bail, which means that unlike previous situations in which he could get out on bail and then try the court, he was stuck in jail. Uh, but his opponents were not satisfied with him being held in the county seat and about to be tried for treason. 
And instead, a mob is organized based in nearby Warsaw, a longtime rival of Nauvoo. They march to the Carthage jail on June 27th, um, overrun the overwhelmed guards, and climb up and kill Joseph Smith uh, a little after five o'clock that day, killing both Joseph Smith, his brother Hiram, and wounding John Taylor, an apostle who was with them. And one other apostle was in the room, Willard Richards, who, who survived unscathed. So, Ben, uh, destroying a press, okay, as a journalist, that seems rather extreme. Uh, uh, so uh, was that in those days seen that way as a really extreme way to, to take care of what they saw as a problem? So destroying presses were common uh, or not common. They were present in those days. The Saints' own press was destroyed in Independence, Missouri, uh, just a little over a decade earlier. Um there were forms of extra legal justice in early America. This was a time where the federal government or even state government was not, their presence were not really felt. So many citizens felt that the best way, the most swift, efficient, and just way to get uh, recompense or justice or restore order would often be through these vigilante committees. Um, so destroying press was understood by a majority of people as wrong. The freedom of speech was a celebrated uh, freedom during early America, including by the saints. But Joseph Smith saw it uh, the Nauvoo Expositor as such an existential threat that it warranted it. In fact, in one of the city council meetings, he said, I would rather die than see this press survive for another day, a uh, prophecy that ended up proving quite prescient. So we, we alluded to this in the um, intro, but Joseph Smith was running for president uh, at, that, at the time, running for the White House, uh, obviously as a very outsider candidate. Uh, did Latter-day Saints and outsiders view this as a political assassination? And did the re did the press report it that way at the time? It was a political assassination in the sense that Joseph Smith was the first presidential candidate to be killed while campaigning for the presidency. However, it wasn't that Smith's neighbors and opponents saw him as a viable candidate. I think very few people actually saw him more as just a protest candidate. As much as they saw his presidential campaign as an example of his unchecked ego, as someone who is untethered from reality, as someone who is not willing to listen to reason. Here is someone whose um, megalomania had grown so large that he thinks he can tilt the national presidential campaign. So that coupled with his other activities, including rumors creeping out of a secretive theocratic council that Joseph Smith had organized in Nauvoo had led uh, their neighbors to conclude that this is not someone we can reason with. And therefore, he is an existential threat to the democratic process. So you alluded to some of the internal um, issues that led to the Nauvoo expositor. What, what were some of... Uh, what actually was happening inside the church? 
Yeah. So Joseph Smith was never one to stand still with doctrines. He was always about evolution and progression and trying to develop things. He often promised his followers that there are many things yet to be revealed in this living faith. Well, whenever you do that, you're going to risk offending people who like the church the way it is and are not excited about these changes. And there are a few uh, new doctrines introduced in Nauvoo that were as salacious or divisive as Joseph Smith's introduction of polygamy, uh, a practice that I believe he introduces in 1840, 1841, of combining uh, unions of men with multiple women. Uh, Joseph Smith is probably sealed to... Uh, over 30 women by 1844. And there were a number of saints who saw this as a betrayal of foundational morals and doctrines. And so when Joseph Smith expands the practice of polygamy during 1843, especially in the summer of the fall in 1843, you see a number of prominent members, those who, like William Law, serve in the First Presidency, or those who serve on the Nauvoo High Council, or those who have been with the faith for over a decade, say that Joseph Smith is betraying our church and and corrupting our doctrines. And so though those key internal dissenters are going to be the ones who form their own church in the spring of 1844 and then of course form their own newspaper to expose. Those who did the Nauvoo Expositor weren't in their mind they weren't wanting to destroy Mormonism. They were wanting to reform Mormonism. They denounced Joseph Smith as a fallen prophet, someone who was a prophet, but someone who was now uh, doing bad things and needs to be either curtailed or removed from his position so that pure Mormonism can flourish. Did any of those insider people feel like Joseph had become a megalomaniac, like you were saying that outsiders thought? Absolutely. They thought that Joseph Smith had now taken this, uh, taken his prophethood to his head, that it had gone too far, that now he was using his prophetic perch to teach doctrines that were going to benefit or privilege or satisfy himself rather than church at writ large. They saw polygamy as a horrible, sexually driven uh, action to where Joseph Smith is hoarding this power to seduce women rather than spread the gospel. So let's look outside the church now. What were the external complaints that led to such opposition against Nauvoo, the Mormons, and Joseph Smith? At first, the state of Illinois was very anxious to welcome the saints. I mean, the fact that the Mormons had been kicked out of Missouri, which was Illinois' uh, stark rival, meant that the enemy of our enemy is our friends. We're going to show Illinois what's up, and we're going to actually embrace these uh, controversial figures and show them that a multivocal democracy can actually work. And Further, politicians were anxious to court the Mormons because Illinois was a pretty divided political uh, arena. You had about half of the citizenry who supported the Democrats and the other half who supported the Whigs, the second major political party of the time. Illinois was also booming politically. And so you have the two political parties who see these incoming thousands of saints as potential voters, and we're going to want to court them for our own support. We are going to want them to vote for our preferred candidates because they may be the decisive votes. So Democrats and Whigs trip over each other trying to court the Mormon vote, which is why the Mormons get a very 
uh, generous Nauvoo charter uh, in 1840 and 1841. It's why politicians make Nauvoo a common stop on their campaigns. And it's why you have lots of politicians pledging to support the Mormons in return for the Mormons' unified block voting, because Mormons saw this as their chance to take advantage of a uh, amenable political situation and make people actually listen to their interests for once. Well, those outside of Nauvoo and those who aren't running for political office, they're going to cry, going to think that this is uh, this is the Mormons uh, corrupting the democratic process to for American democracy to flourish. People need to vote with their individual conscience, not at the dictate of their prophetic leaders. Further, so one, the Mormons are a political threat because they are going to control county and perhaps statewide votes through their unified voting patterns. Second, in the legal sphere, they have come to think that the Mormons had found this loophole through uh, the, a writ of habeas corpus that was going to shield Joseph Smith from justice. At three distinct points in the 1840s, Missouri issues an arrest warrant for Joseph Smith to be tried for issues that had to take place in Missouri. Illinois governor had writ, uh, had issued an extradition order for Joe Smith to return to Missouri. And at these three different points, Joe Smith finds a way to get a writ of habeas corpus that absolves him from those arrest warrants. And the Mormons become much more grandiose in their use of of habeas corpus. The last time they use a city count, uh, uh, the city uh, justices to issue this writ, which goes against state and federal laws for a city to issue a writ of habeas corpus for an arrest warrant that originated outside the city. And so to those outside of Nauvoo, Joseph basically has a get out of jail free card to where he is never going to be brought to justice because the Mormons had found a way to, in their minds, manipulate the judicial system. And politicians are not willing to step in because they don't want to lose Mormon votes. And so what happens is those outside of Nauvoo believe that the only way to bring Joseph to justice is to do the actions themselves because the existing political system was no longer working. So you've kind of already answered this, but why why weren't they satisfied with their the justice system? They think that the judicial system had become too porous and manipulatable by those who can act in big groups. They believe that Joseph Smith had no regard for the law. The term that they would usually say is he is above the law. And they believe that politicians were not willing to step in and do the dirty work at the risk of losing votes. So one of the great ironies of this story is both the Mormons and the non-Mormons have come to distrust the democratic process which is why both sides turn to what we'll call experimental measures to secure their rights outside of existing political and legal structures. So, Ben, I'm going to ask a question I know historians hate to be asked, (laughs) but I'm going to plow forward anyway. Okay, had the killings not taken place and the case against Joseph Smith proceeded, what would have or could have been the most likely outcome? Yeah, it is likely that Joseph Smith would have, uh, 
if it went to court, it's likely that Joe Smith would have been found guilty, especially if they were able to move the jury base outside of Nauvoo, because there is enough of an anti-Mormon uh, uh, sentiment to where it's unlikely he would have found a, a sympathetic set of voters. More likely is they would have found a generous plea deal that would have tried to avoid uh, a major conviction of treason in return for the saints giving up maybe their uh, practice of habeas corpus in Nauvoo, or maybe even pushing the Mormons to move. Um, but the conflict between the Mormons and the non-Mormons were only escalating. I don't think that would have gone away because after Joe Smith is killed, when the Illinoisians were like, well, this Mormon problem is solved. We don't have to worry about them anymore. Well, they start acting as a political body just a couple months later in the August 1844 election. And of course, that eventually results in less than two years of the Mormons being forcibly expelled from the state. Um, so I think it would have led to bloodshed at some point. Uh, but by what terms and to what degree, historians make horrible profits. So I don't know. <laughs> So what happened to the killers? Did, were they brought to justice? So within a few weeks of Joseph being killed, Willard Richards produces a list of up to 30 people that he knew were part of the mob because he was an eyewitness. The state takes nearly a year to investigate. They conclude that the best way to achieve justice is to focus on the five provable people who were not only there, but were kind of the mob leaders. Um, and that includes Thomas Sharp, who was the editor of the nearby Warsaw Signal, an anti-Mormon newspaper, as well as several other military and civic leaders. Those five go to trial in the spring and summer of 1845. But it's, it's a fascinating story, and I recommend those listening to read uh, Alex Beam's American Crucifixion, a wonderful book that focuses on the trial. Um, but the general takeaway is all five are uh, acquitted uh, based on the idea that how can we publish punish these few people for doing the will of an entire county? Uh, almost a sacralization of the vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. So therefore, we're going to let them off. And so Mormons view this acquittal as evidence that there is no way we can get fair justice in this uh, city, county, state, or even nation, which is what's going to further prompt them to move westward. Um, FYI, Peggy uh, interviewed Alex Beam uh, about his book uh, several years ago, so you can also find that at sltrib.com. Um, so uh, stepping back a little bit now, Ben, what do you think most Latter-day Saints either get wrong or don't understand or appreciate about what is termed a martyrdom within the faith? One of the... One of my key goals in writing my book, Kingdom Nauvoo, was I wanted to make it clear how those who marched on Carthage jail and killed Joseph Smith were doing so rationally. And by that, I don't mean defensively. I'm not going to defend this extra legal murder, but I do want to do the historian's job of explaining why people might see that as rational. I wanted to answer the question, what led otherwise peaceful, law-abiding citizens to determine that the best way to preserve their justice was an extra-legal killing of someone held in state custody? Because that's a massive action. We have this idea of 
mob action as these irrational actors holding pitchforks and bonfires um, and, you know, running from place to place without much reason. But here is a group of people who, at least in their minds, were acting rationally. They even wrote a manifesto um, addressed to the governor explaining why we are doing this. They thought that they were now a minority in their own county. They had no trust in the existing existing legal, judicial, and police system. So they believe that, this, and you can almost find in their wording, in this manifesto, the same wording that the Mormons would have been using in their creation of the Council of 50, in their March of Zion's camp, uh, in their actions of the resulting uh, Nauvoo War the next year. This is a time of extra legal action of vacuous uh, federal and state intervention where many people thought it was left to them to secure justice. I mean, the fact that the mob used the title, the Warsaw Committee of Safety, the same term, the committees of safety that were used by patriots during the American Revolution, kind of emphasize this extra legal tradition. And I tried to explain uh, to Latter-day Saints that, look, you don't have to agree with why these people killed Joseph Smith. You can be mad at these people and you can believe these myths that have cropped up of how they were divinely punished, but let's at least place ourselves in their shoes and understand why they thought that action was necessary. So there's apparently a, a conspiracy that, that this was some kind of inside job. Can you explain that, Ben? Yes, uh, this is the conspiracy. When I went on my book tour a few years ago, this conspiracy started creeping up in some of my public lectures in the Q&A, and it, it just baffled me. Um, so the conspiracy is the idea that the Quorum of the Twelve had concluded that uh, they did not le like the direction that Joseph Smith was leading the church, and therefore they had to perform a coup and take him out and take control. Um, and so therefore, Joseph Smith was killed by either John Taylor or Willard Richards from inside the jail that they took advantage of this broader uh, crisis going on to secure control for themselves. Now, let me state from the outset, this conspiracy is as respectable academics would put it, a nut job. There is no evidence for it. There's no internal, external documentary evidence to actually believe it. Um, but as historians, again, I want to be able to understand where is this conspiracy coming from? And what I find interesting is those who are peddling in this conspiracy are often, though not uh, always, aligned with the other conspiracy that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. Um, uh, many of these people are connected to the schismatic group led by Denver Snuffer, who largely believe in this declension narrative, uh, declension meaning that things have, you know, gone to pot, that we need to return to this great uh, moment of yesteryear, that Joseph Smith was a pure prophet who practiced pure Mormonism, and that later on it was corrupted, notably through polygamy. And so to push this narrative, some have now said that Joseph was so against polygamy that Brigham Young, the corrupt demonic polygamist, had to actually order a hit job on Joseph Smith so that they can finally take Joseph Smith or take Mormonism down this polygamous path. Um, it has been striking how 
far this conspiracy has gone, there's been, uh, I guess, a, a documentary about it. Uh, there are some speakers on the topic. It has absolutely no basis in reality, but I think it fits into this broader cultural moment of widespread conspiracies, distrust of traditional narratives, and I believe a hope to try to see Joseph Smith as this pure prophet. So a, a, a final question, Ben, what, what are some lasting lessons that Smith's death teaches concerning American religious history? I think Americans have largely prided themselves on living in a nation uh, that exults in religious freedom and religious liberty, that we are in a country that figured it out, so to speak, that we grant enough leniency to even the craziest of craziest religions. Um, the story of Nauvoo and the moment of Carthage um, proves the lie to that story, that mm. America uh, has often had trouble regulating those religions that don't fit within what we would call respectable boundaries. Um, Mormons had come to believe that there was no uh, place within the existing systems for them. And there, therefore, they started practicing more and more radical uh, activities to be able to secure their freedoms, which in turn prompted those who opposed the Mormons to see see them as direct threats to democracy. So what Joseph Smith's death does is it shows us how contested religious freedom and democracy was only a few generations into the national experiment. Benjamin Park, thanks for joining us today. It's been an honor. Thanks to Dave Noyce. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Christopher Samuels. We remind our listeners that they can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormon land newsletter. Just go to sltrib.com to sign up and we'll talk again next time on Mormon land. Mm -hmm.